So AIRWAP affects thousands of Californians and their communities. Approximately 5,000 people are serving AIRWAP in California state prisons. Over 200 are women and transgender men in the Central California Women's Facility and the California Institution for Women, CIW, where I was for 23 years. AIRWAP is costly and inhumane. The increase in LWAP sentences means that California prison populations are aging. California spends approximately $138,000 a year on each incarcerated person over the age of 55. While LWAP is promoted by some as humane alternatives to the death penalty, those sentenced to LWAP or sentenced to death by incarceration. As with the death penalty, LWAP deprives hope and disappears people, hiding systemic injustice in the criminal legal punishment system. LWAP is not humane. I just want to say that again and again. It is the death sentence by incarceration. And we are here today to make sure that we are on the right path for people to have hope, build hope inside these prisons. We are turning LWAP around, and we're turning it around now. Welcome everyone to our fifth and final episode. Final for now. We'll hopefully be back. Today we're going to focus on organizing efforts to end life without parole and really dig into the details of the commutation process where the governor commutes someone with life without parole to a sentence that is parole eligible. And as you'll learn, we're in a very rare and unique political moment where Governor Brown is actually commuting people and folks are coming home. So it's December 2018 right now, and we're just about a week away from Governor Brown's next round of commutations. And many of us are are holding our breath and knowing that um, folks who we love will likely be on that list and many folks who we love will likely be not on that list. Uh, Last month, on November 20th, Governor Brown issued 70 commutations overall, and this is like unheard of for him to grant so many commutations. 32 of those were for people serving life without parole, which was amazing. And of those 32, there were eight people from women's prisons, many of whom California Coalition for Women Prisoners has worked directly with, Tammy, Judith, Amy, Rita, some of those folks you've heard on this podcast, too. So Governor Brown has commuted 18 people in total, serving life without parole from women's prisons, 54 people serving life without parole in the men's prisons, and then there's been an additional 80 people who he has commuted who were serving life sentences, so not LWAP, but very long sentences. To hear more about this, we have Tara Lawyer and Colby Lenz from CCWP. Hi, my name is Tara I am a formerly incarcerated youth offender who was recently paroled in 2017. I've been an active member with CCWP since 2009. Once paroled, I continued to advocate and work with all the different organizers to bring to the public's attention many of the things going on inside prison and ways that we can get involved with changing mass incarceration. 
Hi, my name is Colby, and I've been a member of CCWP since 2003, working alongside incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people in the women's prisons in California. We are going to share about organizing efforts against life without parole. The audio we heard at the beginning of this episode was from the Drop LWAP rally and lobby day in Sacramento on August 6, 2018. We heard the voice of Marilyn Ralston, a formerly incarcerated CCWP member and leader who emceed the event. So CCWP members inside and outside of prison, as well as other coalition members like Families United to End LWAP and the Felony Murder Elimination Project, came together to organize a lobby day and protest in Sacramento to launch, in some ways, our campaign to drop LWAP. And we showed up that morning alongside our allies at the Californians United for Responsible Budget, CURB, to do a lobby day to support several of the policy changes that we are hoping to make collectively as well. And then in the middle of the day, we gathered outside of the Capitol on the steps to do a rally to drop LWAP. At that rally, we had people, primarily formerly incarcerated people, including people who were sentenced to life without parole, as well as family members who have loved ones serving life without parole, stand on the Capitol steps and demand an end to life without parole sentencing and speak to the experience of people surviving that sentence and many of the injustices involved in the sentencing itself. Now we're going to hear from Nia, who is a force to be reckoned with. Initially, you might see that she's soft-spoken, but her words pierce the hard truths that many of us refuse to face. I found myself at 21 years old, sentenced to life without the possible parole. I didn't fully understand that until I came to prison and someone told me, you know, they're never, you're never going to board, you're never getting out, you're going to die in prison. And that was a shock to me. I was thinking to myself, this is America that gives up on 18-year-olds, on 16-year-olds, on 17-year-olds. Those, like myself, sentenced you know, as a youth offender, not giving that opportunity to turn their lives around. That one-time mistake, that choice, whether it would, whether it would be out of fear, you know, trying to protect themselves, or just for myself, being an aider and better. You're guilty just like the actual perpetrator. And I said, this is not due process. This is like a delayed process in itself, and I said, you you know what, if I ever were to get out, if I ever were to get out, I'm going to make sure this LWAP sentence is due away with. Because you know what? Because these are community members that are locked up. I have family members in there, chosen family members that shaped me to who I am. There's someone's mother, daughter, sister, relative. They all have turned their whole life around. And there's not a day goes by that they don't have this hope that someone is talking on their behalf, someone is speaking, someone's fighting for them. Because if you're not doing that for yourself, no one's helping them. There's people out there that don't understand that there's folks out there incarcerated for life. They don't want to, and if they hear about it, they don't want to deal with it. You know why? Because it's not happening to them. They're not their family members. But you know what? affects them because they're paying for the tax for them that being locked up, spending $70,000, for each people that's incarcerated, right? And you know what? And I'm speaking for, for Amy, for Stacy, for for, for Karen, for Ed, and all of my sisters, because I was, you know, talking to them last night, you know, through this JPAYS, you know, like a system that continue want to like make profit out of them, and I'm thinking to myself, 
they're so eager to want to find out what's going to happen you know at the end of the hearing like is there hope and then you know what I was in the lobby hearing earlier regarding AB 2045 you know for those that are LWAPs that don't have um, paroles that don't have the access because they went through their appeals process but give um, AB 2845 a chance with a commutation and parting act will give those inside more access accessibility to have a panel that's not going to be uh, judgmental because you know that's not law enforcement to say you know what you've turned your whole life around it's not a free ticket but it gives them a chance to you know be part of the community again and to have that chance and I think you know what we're here today it's like the first time is this the first rep LWAP of my understanding yes. so this is going to be you know this is going to be the first and last because I my hope is for next year that this LWAP bill will pass yes it's going to be like the last year, and I have hope that it's going to, hope is what kept me alive, and hope is what's going to keep us and keep our family connected and help fight for the release. Thank you so much for having me. I think one of the most powerful things to me about hearing Nia speak and seeing her speak on the Capitol steps in the, in the capital of California is that Nia was sentenced to life without parole. So she was meant by the state to die in prison. And she fought that sentence. She won an appeal. She won several appeals. She finally was eligible for parole. She was denied. She was finally granted parole. And then once she was released, she was detained and she was going to be deported. And the community rose up and and supported her and fought back there. Um, but to see somebody who was sentenced to die in prison on the steps of the Capitol, uh, fighting for all the people that she left behind and others in the state that she doesn't know, is so powerful. And I think this is part of what's so powerful about the movement to end LWAP, is that as as we fight and support people getting free who were sentenced to LWAP, their power, their survival, um, and their expertise is, is leading the movement to end the sentencing. I agree. One of the things that I think Nia eloquently pointed out was the fact that they are human beings. By calling them out by name, by humanizing them and showing people that, just like her, being an LWOP in the past hid her from ever being able to showcase her truth, ever being able to show others that rehabilitation is real because she was granted parole. So that meant that the same system that tucked her away into dying into prison was the same one that said, oh, wait, you are no longer a risk to society and you should be released and you should be free so that you can have that second chance. If we take that same formula and apply it to all LWAPs, we would see that every single one of them could quite possibly have a second chance if given it. One of the things that we planned to do at the Drop LWAP rally in August was to deliver a letter to Governor Brown asking him to commute the sentences of everybody serving life without parole in the state of California and making our case that it's an inhumane, costly uh, sentence that absolutely uh, denies people's chance of transformation and change and also denies that there's so much injustice that goes into the sentencing of people serving life without. So we had over 100 organizations uh, endorsing and signing on to that letter. And we tried to go in with a, a kind of larger contingent of people, people directly impacted who, like Nia, she was part of the group who had been sentenced to life without parole and many family members whose loved ones are serving LWAP uh, to deliver the letter to the governor in person. And we also had a whole stack of material from people at CCWF who are serving LWAP still, uh, who delivered a huge thank you banner 
to Governor Brown for the commutation so far and other material. And so we were able to have a couple people sent in um, to deliver the material. They spoke to somebody, you know, in power in the governor's office, but not the governor himself, and were able to deliver all that material. And we heard afterwards in particular that they were so moved by the thank you banner and cards and letters from people um, serving LWAP at CCWF. I think back in, uh, you know, about 2010, when you know, rehabilitation was this this token that was passed around and that was spoken of. We started to see so many individuals having more hope. They're like, oh, my God, if I get a higher education, that means I can come home early? And really thinking about change and so on and so forth. But something interesting took place. The one community in prison that was told you will never be seen before a commissioner. You will never be considered before the Board of Parole hearings. The LWAP sentenced individuals were just as hungry for this rehabilitation. They did not care whether or not they can show their certificate to anyone. They didn't care if they couldn't show their chronos to anyone. They didn't care if people wrote support letters or reference letters because no one cared to look at their files and see them for the new individual that they were becoming, and yet they still hungered. So it shows something about our human spirits. It shows something about our nature. And once we became connected to this truth, I think CCWP picked up that baton and they lit it like a torch and we ran with it. That's amazing. You know, since 2003 for me and certainly longer for other CCWP members on the outside and inside, um, I kept hearing in my ear from people like Kelly Savage, Mm -hmm. when is someone going to do something about LWAP? When is someone going to do something about LWAP? And, you know, Kelly, like others inside who advocate and support people so much, knows very well that there are so many issues that need addressing, right? But she kept that going in my ear and that everybody else was hearing it from everybody else. And we started by doing issues of the Fire Inside newsletter, you know, written mostly by incarcerated people about LWAP. We, you know, started with some of those kind of smaller educational steps on the outside. That my experience was that kind of pressure from inside. Like, this is one of the worst of the worst sentences. Nobody is paying attention to it. Challenging this sentence will have a ripple effect for all life sentences, right, for death penalty and the, all the complications of the organizing around to end the death penalty. And then emerge a storytelling project on the outside to do the work of trying to humanize and tell the stories of people in the women's prison serving LWAP, right? And then uh, I know that a part of the goal of that project was always to be used as a tool to support the organizing to end life without parole sentencing. So this, you know, it's a great, great example, I think, of how to organize across the walls in a way that's responsive to what people are experiencing inside um, and also reflects, you know, our commitment to supporting the organizers and advocates inside that are so often people, um, not exclusively, right, but so often people serving long terms, like life without and long life sentences who run most of the programs and do a lot of the survival support inside. So, you know, how can we be responsive to this and also use the fight to end LWAP as a larger struggle to end severe sentencing, period. But I think one of the, the main things that really pushed this into motion was the merging of Proposition 57. Proposition 57 was one of the most incredible movements towards rehabilitation efforts from the inside, from getting individuals out early for good time and for recognizing um, you know, credits onto people's sentences, One interesting memory is Secretary Scott Kernan wrote a letter to the prisoners of all the California's state prisons and 
It was such a moving letter. He was talking so bluntly, so professionally frank to a community of what the what the world would think is hardcore criminals, right? He pierced this 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 wall of rigidness with real warm truths about this is your opportunity to do better, to be better, to get better, and we want to reward you for those efforts, except LWAPs. And so while the letter was so moving, there was one individual, one, one group of people that he did not include. And yet it contradicts the whole entire concept when you're saying, hey, LWAPs, um, you're excluded. From everything. From everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the the degree of hopelessness and despair that that sentence can cause people is just, you know, there are not words for that, right? Mm. So that was the other, I think, goal. The other goal um, across the walls is to bring more hope by building a campaign to fight to end LWAP, even though it seems impossible. In respect to the way that individuals started advocating and organizing on the inside, let's just put it this way. I was blown away behind watching the LWAP community hold, uh, you know, commutation workshops, education seminars. It wasn't, you know, some attorney coming in or, you know, a professional professor that wanting to teach the community about how to put together a commutation packet, why to put a commutation packet. This was peer-led. It was the peers of the the LWAP individuals representing other LWAPs and said, you know what, we're not going to keep this a secret. Totally. And that, what a phenomenon, right? I mean, the more people, if he was only granting, let's say, 10 commutations every five years, then the more LWOPs, that would reduce your your chances, so to speak, in theory. And yet they didn't care. It wasn't a matter of, let me walk over this bridge and burn it behind me because I don't want no one else to take my chance. It was like, we need to get together, increase the numbers, and show that we are hungry for freedom. Right. I mean, there's no more powerful solidarity in, Absolutely. in that level of scarcity, right? I am particularly um, grateful about the LWAP support groups that continue to go on inside. And basically every week they hold space for individuals to come in with different topics every week to share about what it's like to be an LWAP, the heaviness of carrying that sentence, inspiring hope, giving direction, holding each other's hands with guidance, educating continuously about the different changes, keeping each other updated. I mean, the network that that space and those support groups offer is something no other administrative individual in the CDCR infrastructure ever thought to do. And so I'm really grateful to see that it's a peer-led, peer-initiated support group that continues to add that, that extra support that is greatly needed for our community. Absolutely. And I've heard from people inside that, they, that part of their motivation or just ability to kind of start that kind of thing was supported by seeing people organizing on the outside too, right? Yeah. So feeling like it's like a worthy, um, you know, that people are worthy of fighting for that is part of, you know, just like a kind of across the wall synchronicity of building all the kinds of support and solidarity possible. Yeah. Yeah. Really great. So now we want to hear from Bobby, who is serving Life Without Pearl at the California Institution for Women, CIW. 
about how she organized the LWAP community at CIW, who are largely elderly people. They didn't have a lot of um, support system built for female offenders that are life without parole. So I went to Jane Dorotick, who is a chairperson of LTO, very good person, very good comrade. I love Jane. Anyway, so I said, hey, can I do a tea party? So what I did is created some invitations and invited all 38 women, even the ones in Asset. I knew they couldn't come, but all 38 women to the tea party. Well, about 20 showed up, and that was pretty good. And then one who got out of jail, but she was being transferred, I made sure she got the information I was going to share with the girls about commutation of sentence, about taking groups, encouraging them. And a lot of, a lot of the girls were excited because they felt forgotten about. A lot of my sisters down here are in wheelchairs and walkers and... They've got illnesses that they're dealing with on a daily basis, and they're tired and they're in pain. So me, I'm 48, one of the youngest ones down here. <laughs> Put fire up under them, basically. And everybody is supporting each other more and greeting each other when we see each other. Um, one young lady, been down 30 years, she... Um, put together a picture. So our picture, well, I didn't make it because I was doing legal work, but our picture is going to be in the newsletters that we are LWAS, but we are mentors and your life is valuable. Even how long we've been down, we know our life is valuable to prevent suicide, hopefully to encourage the people to press on. Bobby's so even keeled. Like, she's got such this temperament that is so leveled. And I remember when she worked at the law library, she never stopped working. Like, she was always in the mode to provide people with the tools that they needed to reach their goals, whether it's through the court system, whether it's in the community. And I just really appreciate how she doesn't take ownership of how key she is in many of those efforts. She's so humble and such a powerful Mm -hmm. organizer. Yeah, she also was one of the, you know, two main leaders of the LWAP town hall at CIW. And I've heard from many people serving LWAP at CIW that they're just so grateful because she was transferred down from CCWF that she's been there to help support the community. And I remember that day that we had the town hall there, they had, um, you know, special seats selected for everybody sentenced to life without parole at CIW. And that's a smaller number, right, than who are at CCWF in terms of who's in the women's prisons. And they weren't sure how many people serving life without were going to come to this event, even though it was focused on life without. And that's, you know, likely not happened maybe ever, especially with outside support at CIW. And they were so, they, they held all these little pre-meetings beforehand as she's talking about to try to motivate people to be there and that there's hope and that there's people fighting with you and for you. And um, I know that they were so moved by the fact that, you know, a large part of the community did come. And then they asked everybody to stand or basically to raise their hands because so many people are so elderly and so disabled. It's a very elderly community of people serving life without parole at CIW. And since then, we've worked with many of those women who had not yet submitted commutation applications because they'd given up hope entirely, right? Well, I'm going to die in prison at this point. I'm already 79. I'm already 82. I'm already 85. 
And we had a lot of different conversations with people, and they had so much support from the inside peers just urging them, urging them, urging them to give it a shot. And so, you know, many of those people now have submitted a commutation application with CCWP support or support from the inside or both, and some of them are getting interviews. And it's to, you can actually see in their faces the change of feeling, you know, this, like, hope that they even though they were resigned to it, you know, this renewed hope that they might not have to die in prison, that they might be able to be with their family members again, that they might be able to see the light of day outside of a cage. We are now going to hear from organizers inside serving LWAP about the importance and impact of organizing their LWAP community. Um, For me as an LWAP, I feel that um, the best way to contribute is to organize the ladies in a way of educating themselves. When we first started um, trying to meet and learn about how many LWAPs we had at VSPW and and, um, what we could do as a a unit, we learned that there was we had about 63 at the time and um, about 2002, 2003, and it was growing, but unfortunately, quickly. And so we had two LWAPs come in one day, and that really shocked the community. And so we started to meet and um, kind of learn like what our needs were. Our needs are are um, not met by any type of mental health help or um, support groups. They have uh, a lot of different lifer groups, but nothing specific to LWAPs. They don't want that. They do not want us meeting in a group forum. We have uh, made many attempts to all get together and meet, and um, it's frowned upon by administration because they do not want us to band together. So we have... Uh, done a lot of uh, letter writing. I, I made packets of any information that we have for LOPS. I now have a binder um, that I recollected trying to uh, get any information and I pass it on to the different yards. The outcome to putting all of this together with the um, Life Without Parole community has been just seeing anything short of just hope where there was none before. Seeing people empowered to see um, people wanting to do more for themselves and knowing that LWAP wasn't necessarily a death sentence and there's something that you have to keep striving for. And so um, I think that's the impact that it's had so far and then just here recently we're starting to see people go home. We're starting to see our LWAPs go home. And so, I mean, if that does something to somebody, that that's just like, man, you know, now everybody's up. Now everybody wants to run around. Now everybody wants to be a part and 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 take their roles and take their information and start sharing their resources and stuff. And that's awesome to see. I appreciate how Ray talks about everyone, you know, finding their role in the in the movement. It's it's very interesting how everyone has a totally different skill set and totally different um, angle and perspectives on what needs to be done. But instead of dividing and going your own way, they realize the strength in, you know, coming together and making it this big movement, this big force to be reckoned with for sure. Absolutely. And I, I just, you know, Kelly, Kelly knows how I feel about her, but she is just a 
beacon of information and hope and her light stays on to make sure everyone has all the information that they need and making sure that, you know, she holds space uh, for people that are hurting, for people that are um, struggling. And I think it's, it's great that we have those individuals that are able to always stay present. They're present. They're very present and, and supportive for the community and this whole entire organizing. Because some people have bad days. You have a bad day when you're organizing, you have hope, and you get pushback, like she said, from the administration. But they don't give up, and that's what's crazy. It's like, I'm not going to, you know, deviate or go around administration's requests, but we're definitely going to write an article, or we're going to get on the phone and and talk to other outside community organizations. Like, it's not going to stop, right? So I appreciate the no, but... That just told me I have to go a different way. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, and I've watched Kelly do that and Ray do that for some years, right? And I remember one day going into an event that people inside had organized um, in the gym, and she literally spent the whole day taking me and other CCWP members from the outside to meet every single LWAP in the room, right? Oh, my God. So now there's like, you know, almost 200 people serving life without at CCWF, so that's no small task. But she and so many others, right, are so determined to to support people, to give them hope, and to, to connect them to as many resources as possible. It's really powerful, the organizing that they that people inside are doing. So in California and across the nation, I think, commutation basically means a commutation of sentence, so a change of sentence. And the other term that's commonly used is executive clemency or clemency, but they mean the same thing. So basically, governors um, across the U.S. have the power to commute um, somebody's sentence, basically, to grant them clemency. And that could look like anything, pretty much. You could also pardon somebody completely, right? But that's not usually considered politically wise. So we haven't had a trend like this across the country since, I think, the 1950s, 1960s. But Governor Brown, in his final term, has been making you know some big moves around granting commutation to people who are incarcerated. So at this point, he's up to 82 people that he's commuted. And most of those, the majority of those, have been in the last two years. And of that, 41 people were commuted from life without parole to a life sentence um, of various terms, but usually 25 to life, um, making them eligible to go before the parole board in California and make the case that they're prepared to return home and show all the programming and everything that they've done inside. So, yeah, 41 of 82 is half of all of the commutations have been for people serving life without parole. And not only are this number of, you know, commutations unheard of, but also commuting people from life without parole is not considered politically expedient, right? And just not even on the map. So this has had a huge impact uh, on people in prison across the state. And everybody who hadn't already applied for commutation had been busy applying or supporting other people to apply, or like Tara said, running workshops, training people, you know, CCWP tried to support by coming up with a commutation application guide. Emil DeWeaver, who was at San Quentin um, before he was commuted and paroled and released recently, created a curriculum to support people. So people have just been hustling to support people in this rare political moment that we're hoping with organizing will become an extended political moment 
and a way to show people that this is possible, that people who are sentenced to die in prison need to be at home in our communities and have the chance, at least, um, to make the case that they're ready to return home. Absolutely. That, all, that, all that is um, very true. I, I want to share about the application process. So anyone in a state California prison can submit an application to the governor's office. The application has several questions that are fairly simple. You know, why do you believe that you should be commuted? What have you done to, you know, change or so on and so forth? They kind of want to see your insight into your acknowledgement of your crime, but They highlight more so what it is that you have done and steps that you have taken to either make amends or change your past ways or address underlining issues that were present when the crime occurred. So one of CCWP's strategies for building the Drop LWAP campaign is to support people directly with commutation applications and also advocacy for their commutation. So we're doing this obviously collectively across the walls and relying on people inside for all of the support that they offer to each other around applications and also coming in through legal visiting to support people directly, as many people as we've been able to, to um, write and submit their applications if they haven't already done that. Next, we will hear a clip from Barbara Chavez, who has actually since been commuted by Brown in Easter 2018, and recently she was granted parole. So now we are all eagerly awaiting her release and the power in organizing that she'll be bringing outside of those walls. And then we'll also hear from Tracy and Michelle. On July 21st, I received a a, a ducat, well, the night before to go on July 21st um, to go to BPH. And I didn't know what this was about, so I was really caught off guard. Um, I got up there, and there's two gentlemen that um, greeted me. And so they they introduced themselves to me, and they asked me um, if I knew who they were and why why I was there, and I said no. And so they pointed to a table inside the little small room, and I recognized my commutation of sentence that I filed in 2013. So I was immediately grateful. I began crying and I was thanking Jesus and I was just blown away. I was completely blown away and so grateful because never in a million years did I, I totally forgot that I had filed this because it had been three years. Um, so he, they sat me down and they told me that they had looked at read over my case and that they both agreed that I had too much time, but that it's ultimately up to the governor's office, that they were just there. They were contacted by the, gov- the legal affairs team in the governor's office, and they were there to interview me. And upon the interview, they were going to do an investigation, and upon the, the, that and the findings there, they were going to make a recommendation. And... He was thorough with his investigation. He contacted me. He contacted my boss here at work at the prison. He contacted my family, my daughter. He talked to different people. Um, he was really thorough. And now my my recommendation and my commutation is sitting on the governor's office, at, on his desk as we speak, and I'm just in hopes, and, and I'm believing that good things are to come. I think personally they should check people's files to see how our behavior is, you know, um, and go by that, you know, instead of you having to fill out this paperwork and you don't know what you're filling out, so if you get it wrong, you get it wrong, you know, it's kind of hard to, did I put all that in there, oh, it's too late, you know, so you have to be accurate 
with it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know what to do, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the only thing. Can nobody help you but yourself? And there's no assistance for commutations. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You have to be lucky if you can get somebody from a law school or a pro bono. We, we became aware that last year in 2016 that the uh, Governor Jerry Brown's office was actually uh, moving forward and sending teams to interview about five or six LWOPs here in, in California. So uh, many of us have talked about doing commutations. For me personally, I started working on one uh, actually in 2013. I was unprepared for the emotional roller coaster that it presented, and here's why. I've watched for years my fellow lifers prepare for going to board, working on relapse prevention plans, understanding their causative factors, your nexus, all that speak and talk that goes into preparing for the board. And I suddenly realized that I was literally doing what lifers do to prepare for board. It put me into their shoes of how difficult it is to not only try to transcribe on a paper your understanding of your life and, and the whys of what you've done and, and your, your ownership and insight into what you've done. The, the process really debilitated me. I hit some roadblocks where I discovered my self-esteem issues, my, my issues from my past were really telling me I didn't deserve this. Look at what I've done. Um, you know, who are you to even ask for this? And I've struggled for two and a half years to be in the place that I am now. And the place I am now is that I am not a person to be defined by one act. Um, I am not the sum total. You know, my sum total is more than just that one part, right? Who I am today does deserve a consideration for a possible release date based on the fact that I am not the same person I am today that I was in 1991. I most appreciate how Tracy talks about there not being a lot of support. Initially, when this whole entire movement started, you couldn't find a a law office that specialized in commutations. It wasn't something anyone wanted to touch. There wasn't any profit or even, you know, not profit, so to speak, but it couldn't help their operational costs and so on and so forth because there wasn't a, a form of income from that. And how do you even rate you know, helping someone with a commutation and how far can you take it? It's really your story that impacts the individuals that are reading it in the governor's office that's going to get you further along, right? So I think that's a key to point out how how important and significant CCWP's role in taking up this baton has been because here we have individuals who are not just advocates but have some experience and their lifelong experience with the legal criminal justice system, criminal justice reform, addressing mass incarceration and so on, being able to guide, support, and instruct, right? Super complicated when we haven't had a history of this level of grants of, of commutation. So the last big round, I think it was uh, Governor Brown Sr. in the 50s and 60s that he did about 50 total in his term, which was much bigger than, than other governors, right? Like it tends to be like one or two in an entire four years. 
So the fact that Brown has done 82 now gives us more information about what kinds of things he's looking for in people's applications, right? But at the beginning, we were just hearing from people um, who were connected to in the women's prisons. Some people are getting interviewed. You know, well, shoot, I better get something in and I better inspire other people sentenced to LWAP to, to get in on this, even though nobody had any idea where it was heading, right? So in a lot of ways, it's been like a people's application process. Pretty much nobody in this generation has had experience successfully filing commutation applications right. for oneself or for other people until these last two years, right? And yet the law has been in existence for many decades. And yet there wasn't a procedural practice that was kind of put in place to say, okay, step one, this happens. It was just sitting on people's desks. Like you said, people who submitted commutations 10 years ago was never getting even acknowledged from the governor's office that we received your application, we'll let you know never, you know, something. And so, you know, it's interesting that Governor Brown is really setting this precedent for creating a pattern, for creating a policy, for creating a process so that individuals that do apply have some sort of expectation of what takes place down the road after they submit their application. Totally. And yeah, we can we can we heard Barbara talk about just the shock of being called getting a board of parole hearings ducket as somebody serving life without parole and having no idea, especially those early women who were interviewed, like having no idea why they were getting a PPH ducket because it had been so many years since they put in their applications. Right. We tried to pass a bill this year that was going to change the process for commutation applications as well as pardon applications. Great. And we did pass the bill, but only um, after they gutted most of the substantial components of it. So we were trying to push, as you heard in Nia's speech at the rally, we were trying to push for them for, you know, an actual pardon and commutation panel that would be informing the governor's office and reviewing these applications. And it would be composed of not law enforcement, um, like for the most part, the Board of Parole hearings, but community experts in trauma, in reentry, in, you know, the kinds of rehabilitation that the system is supposed to promote and so on and so forth, right? Totally true. Um, they found this too threatening. Um, so they gutted that part of the bill and some of the other um, kind of expedited timelines that we push for, responding from people inside, you know, with the stress of like, you put in your application, you have no idea, one, if it was ever received, and two, you know, if, if there's any kind of timeline on this, if you're going to get an interview or not, if you have any chance, right? So right. this causes so much stress for people. So in the end, we were able to pass the bill. It's AB 2845 with Bonta's office, Assemblymember Bonta's office. And it. so the only thing that we really got for commutations is that they are now required to notify people that they have received their application, that it goes to the Board of Parole hearings for investigation, and when the investigation and recommendation is complete. Yeah. So we got a tiny little thing. <laughs> but that tiny thing is a big thing for individuals that are on the inside, having no ears or eyes or connection to the internet to kind of check up on things. And I mean, this is this is huge for someone that, um, you know, has been stripped of their voice uh, totally. Submitting paperwork um, is the only relief that they have. And to be told that somebody received something is a lot bigger than not being told anything for years. It's so up to the politics of the moment, right? Like, depending on which governor appoints which commissioners and the investigators that they direct, you know, it's, it's if, if the person in charge, if the governor doesn't want to pursue this process, then, then they won't. And nobody will be asked to do that. So 
that was part of the idea of creating a special board was that it might incentivize, right. you know, future pardons and commutations. But I think the process of working in that bill helped also build more coalition and understanding um, about pardons, which are so important, especially for undocumented immigrants who faced prison time, totally. but also commutations. I can't emphasize enough the importance and power of organizing this Drop LWAP campaign. It is something that we need to continue to speak about until we have no LWAPs in the state of California prisons. It is the other death penalty. And to tell an individual that you will never, ever, ever come home, no matter how much you change, is a contradiction to our system, it is a contradiction to our humanity, and it doesn't align with what is right, true, and just. And I would just add that being up at the Capitol for the Drop LWAP rally and hearing people speak out on those steps and and seeing and being a part of this crowd of people who who care so deeply about people who've been sentenced to die in prison, who are there fighting for their family members, their friends, their loved ones, um, or just fighting in solidarity because they don't believe in um, sending people to die in prison, that the just the idea of being on the Capitol steps just screaming out loud that it's time to drop LWAP in a place where there's been so much hostility and so much unwillingness to think through the most extreme sentencing. So the power of just being on those Capitol steps in the seat of power and just saying, no, you know, we're not, we're not even going to water down our demand. We want to end life without parole sentencing. It was amazing. Thank you to our incarcerated members who shared their stories, Barbara, Bobby, Ray, Kelly, and Tracy. Thank you so much to Tara Lawyer and Colby Lenz for discussing with us the organizing efforts to end life without parole. And thank you all so much for listening to this episode and the previous four episodes. We will hopefully be back with some bonus episodes and shorter storytelling clips from Inside members. And we want you all to stay in touch with us and stay informed about our fight against the other death penalty. So find us at womenprisoners.org, droplwap.com, thelivingchance.com on Facebook and on Instagram, CA underscore coalition. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope that hearing the stories directly from our members serving life without parole inside will move you all to join our fight in ending the other death penalty. It is our duty to fight for our freedom! It is our duty to fight for our freedom! It is our duty to win! Good. Y'all sound good. Thank you so much for joining me in that.